0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Nourish
1: and Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Hello, this is Dana Cowan. Welcome to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. On this episode, I'm excited to interview the Louisville-based chef and restaurateur, Ed Lee, and pastry chef, Emmy Dugan. Ed launched the Lee Initiative, which conveniently is his last name, but it also means something. It means let's empower employment. As part of this program, they've created the Women Chefs Initiative, which provides mentorship and leadership opportunities for five individuals per class. So I'm super excited to have you guys here. Welcome, Emmy. Welcome, Ed. Thank, Thank you. you. Ed, you, you launched this variously in the press, 2015, 2017. But I imagine one. it was the idea that fomented in your mind and your partner, Lindsay. Yeah. It's
3: 2015. We started our, our uh, nonprofit, and we were doing um, smaller programs in and around Louisville. Obviously, when the Me Too movement came out, you know, we had a long, hard look at our industry, our nonprofit, what we were doing, and um, we wanted to address it. We just didn't know how and what to do, so uh, we kept coming back to this idea of mentorship. We wanted to do something that would have legs, that would last for a very long time, uh, and that would really impact people's lives. And, and we landed on uh, this mentorship program. And so it's five young chefs a year, and, and we, you know, pick them from hundreds of applicants. And we, they go on this very rigorous ride with us. It's over a six-month journey, everything from media training to, um, you know, fab conference uh, where they do this sort of financial sort of advisement to externship, mentorship culminates in a a dinner at the beard house and it's a it's just a wonderful way to um you know see these young chefs who are really really early in their careers go from being you know sort of confused and scared and 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 wondering what the next step is to you know in less than a year really confident young people
2: so emmy how do you feel about that description of going from confused and scared to confident
4: I agree with it 100%. You do? I do. I never referred to myself as like a pastry chef before. I always called myself like a baker and had like a moment in the program where I was like, I'm going to cook at the Beard House soon. I'm going to get to work next to Chef Lee. He's going to mentor us. And I'm a pastry chef. Like I'm confident in my role and I'm going to keep growing in the career.
2: Let's talk a little bit about your background. You are a... St- Astonishing. <laughs> I know this just from reading that when you were 16, you essentially opened your own business.
4: I did. Business. Yes.
2: You were cooking with your grandmother. Yes. And uh, and then what happened?
4: So I grew up cooking with my grandmother. Um, I spent a lot of time with her, and I still do. I lived with her for a majority of my childhood, and I'm baking. And friends of the family just want to eat them, and they started ordering. So what'd you bake? Cupcakes, cakes, I decorated cakes, just, you know, little basic baking things. From there on, when I got into high school, I was offered like a program at UofL, which is our college. It's called the Young Entrepreneurs Academy, which I think is based in New York. I was 15 at the time, and I went through a year-long program at this college. We had like a four-hour class twice a week, and I developed an LLC, a business plan. I got investors, and I opened M's Delights Bakery. And then I worked in a kitchen incubator
2: called Chef Space. So after that program, then...
4: Yes. So I moved into a storefront. I had a kitchen incubator um, in Portland, which is on the south end of Louisville. And then I bought my own little storefront, little kitchen. And then after that, I actually enrolled in college because I just graduated high school at that time. I was 18. I went
2: to Sullivan for pastry arts. Did you miss your childhood? Like, did you bake all the time and you didn't go to football games? No,
4: that's all I've ever done, honestly. It was like a coping mechanism for me when I was younger. I'm very awkward all the time. So baking is something that's always brought me joy and a connection with my family and friends that I don't always have in
2: like social interactions because I'm super awkward. So, and let's let's talk about your growing up because you grew up in Brooklyn, mm. Korean American. I'm curious what your experience was growing up cooking with your grandmother.
3: My grandmother, you know, it's a very traditional Korean grandmother. She cooked every day. She made like miso, and she would make gochujang and, and make you know all these different fermented things and kimchi, obviously. So um, that was my first exposure to it. And it wasn't. It, it was funny because. Um, you know, in a traditional Korean household, it's like the, the son goes out and plays whatever, baseball, and the daughter, like, stays in the kitchen and, and, and learns how to uh, cook. And I and I had to, like, fight my way in the kitchen. You know, so there was this weird, like, reverse thing happening where I was like, no, I really, really, like, want to see and learn how to make kimchi. And she was like, no, you're not allowed to. So
2: What about making kimchi even drew you in? Because you have that cultural stereotype. You're like, this is not what I'm supposed yeah. to be doing.
3: I, I have no explanation of why I was so interested in it. But I remember telling my parents, I don't know, I, I'm, it's maybe like eight or nine, and I told my parents, I said, I'm going to be a chef one day. You know, but it's like when you, you say, oh, I'm going to be an astronaut, you're like, okay, sure. You know, they would just figured I would grow out of it, you know. And I, <laughs> they started to really get worried when I was turned like 17, and I was still like, yeah, I'm going to be a chef. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and when you hear Emmy's story, like this amazing entrepreneurship yeah. at that age, like what does that make you think of like the little Ed Lee?
3: To me, like, that's the the drive or the passion or the fire. that that's, that's how you make it. And you make it because you also try things and you fail. You know? I mean, do
2: you feel like you've failed? Yes, yes, many times. But what do you feel like you've failed at?
4: I feel like there's many things. Things I've done trial and error, which I would consider failures. I tend to learn things the hardest way possible.
2: And what does that mean?
4: (laughs) Like when someone tells me I can't do something one way, I'm going to try to do it my way because I want to know why. I want to know all the answers to the questions
2: so I have all the information. So I tend to just fail to learn. Is kind of how I work. So, Ed, one of the things that the Lee Initiative is interested in is diversity in general, <laughs> right? And when you were a chef coming up, you worked in French kitchens. I imagine there wasn't a lot of diversity in those kitchens?
3: No, I mean, it was, let's be honest, like back in the day in New York, it was one head chef and one sous chef who were generally white men, and, and everyone else was, you know, Latino, you know, and then there was like me.
2: Do you have feelings about that?
3: Oh, yeah. To this day. Like, yeah.
2: What did that feel like?
3: It was a very unfair system. And it was unfair to, to the Latinos, right, who were, who were just working so hard and never getting credit for any of it. And it was unfair for, for people like me who really wanted to learn because you just didn't spend that much time with the head chef, right? He was off doing other things and, you know, writing reports and flirting with the hostess. And, and... But the flip side of it is that it also taught me to, like, to take charge and learn it. No one was going to teach me. So if I wanted to learn something, I had to go out and learn it. That mentality, which I think is great when you're up and coming, because it creates strength. At some point, once you have a position of power, that same attitude can also be very detrimental, right? Because then, you're going to the next generation and saying, well, I'm not gonna teach you because no one taught me. So you're gonna have to figure it out on your own. And, and it's not that I wanna throw it all out the window, because there are some good things to be learned from working hard and putting your head down and being disciplined. Um, but that whole mentality is sort of, it's ancient history now. And so we have to replace it with something else. And, and really, it's, it's, you know, your generation, Emmy, that, that's going to figure out what that is.
2: So, May, do you feel that as a burden that your generation is the one who's going to solve this?
4: I would say it's more of a challenge. Um, I do think empowering women and diversity in our kitchens is what will start the change. I feel like there's a lot of things we need to address like socioeconomic backgrounds as well just not plain diversity but also like staging the whole concept of free labor and how it's like a privilege for me to be in this program because it was all paid for me to go do this amazing internship which is changing my career because I'm moving now and if I wasn't in this program I wouldn't have had that and I just know there's so many other great young cooks that deserve a spot like i have but can't get it yet and i really think that needs to change
2: i'm curious about the stage program because the idea of stages is that you work for free at extraordinary restaurants you get great training you sacrifice so much because you you have no money you're not being paid any money Mm -hmm. and then you leave with experience which seems of course to privilege those with privilege and what do you think the bigger solution there is
3: you know, so for me, I staged in France, you know, I, I lived out there for six months and made no money and lived out of my car. It, it was an amazing experience. I, I would never change it. I would never trade it. Like it, it gave me the basis for everything. Not everyone that has the opportunity to do that. It's not a fair system. The world isn't fair. Um, but I think we have to uh, figure out a different system versus just staging, you know, like yeah, I don't know. I mean, one of the things, like, like we will always keep this as a small program, five young chefs annually, but what we're trying to inspire is other chefs, other people to start replicating this program in other cities. So I can only do this five people at a time, but if 20 chefs decide to do it in 20 other cities, now it's 100 people, and that's where change happens.
2: Uh- you're about to go to Chicago I to am. work with Mindy Siegel. I'm so excited. And when you were thinking about giving these young chefs exposure, how did you choose the people with whom they would work? How did that evolve?
3: It, so it was collaborative between Lindsay and I, and then we have, right. a, we have sort of a, a small board of directors, like Ronnie Lundy's is very involved, in, and, and we just kind of sit around and we talk about it. You know, we, we try and stress that it's not a culinary program in that we're sending you to places, you know, that that are you know three-star Michelin restaurants. Um, we're, we're sending them to places who we know are, are great chefs, but also care, who give back, who are activists, um, who really have a point of view and something to say. Because what we're trying to do is mentor, like, it, you know, for the next generation of leaders, like, what are the qualities that make you a great leader?
2: Did you have a moment where you felt yourself turn from cook to leader?
3: I, I don't think it was a, a moment like a pinpoint moment but I would say like during the last recession which is gosh I don't know five six years ago um, when when restaurants were really hurting um, you know I, I just remember uh, looking at my payroll and looking at people and, and we were at a real crossroads because the restaurant wasn't making money and um, you know it's like do I lay someone off do I cut people's salaries like what do I do and it, that burden of knowing that um, these these people aren't like college students and making part-time money like there are families there are people whose livelihoods their their children's education and and food depend on this paycheck and um you know obviously we didn't lay anyone off and, and i was very proud we didn't cut any well, it was not
2: obvious and, actually right because yeah. there, lots of people did and yeah. no choice i mean no, yeah you didn't have, there's, there's no, only so much you can so do only so
3: much you can do and it's different if you have a huge corporation of that like i know all these people I know their families and and I think that was where it really struck me.
2: And when you're talking about um, chefs who are great leaders, have you worked for chefs who are great leaders? And what were their actions? Like, what were the deeds?
3: So it, it was a different kind, con- you know, it, it was just a different beast back then, right? But, but um, you know, I worked for, there's, there's a local hero here in New York called Frank Crispo. And, and, and I worked with him for a number of years. And, you know, he was like, he was he was a great mentor. And, and still a great friend. But he was like, it's tough love, you know? I mean, we got into it. And, and, and I just remember this one thing where, He's going to kill me. Uh, we were arguing, because I was making, making desserts, which is oh. one of the reasons why I hate desserts. <laughs> and I was making this lemon tart, and he was like, it's too sour. And I was like, it's a goddamn lemon tart. It's supposed to be sour. <laughs> and we were arguing over it. And I think I, like, threw it in the trash. And I said, well, I guess we're not serving it then. And he got so mad at <laughs> me. There was a, you know, almost a physical alter- altercation. Again, it was just like this crossroad. You know? And I was like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. And um, I came back the next day, and I came back an hour early than what I was supposed to, and I stayed an hour later, and he was so mad. I think he didn't talk to me for like three weeks. Like he literally did not talk to me. I said, I said before I quit, I'm gonna earn his respect, and then I'm gonna quit. And and I stayed for another year, um, and then it's your choice. Like like some people leave, and some people don't. And, and for me, that was a hard lesson because he was not a kind, he's a very generous person, but you know, in the kitchens back then it was not, you know, fun and bubbly place. It was really, really hard. Um, and, and so I just chose to stick stick it out and and it's the best thing I ever did. Okay.
2: Well, we're just going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back.
1: This episode is brought to you by Nourish and Flourish, a handcrafted, independent publication taking readers on a journey from the soil to the stars. Nourish and Flourish showcases thought provoking stories from around the world and stunning photography. Each issue explores emerging trends in food, nutrition, recipes, soil health, technology, regenerative agriculture, travel, and more. Volume 1 of Nourish and Flourish includes features on the Svalbard Global Seed Bank, the International Symposium on Bread, and ancient Hawaiian aquaculture. Are you interested in eating healthier and learning more about where your food comes from and living a more connected life? Subscribe today at nourishandflourish.site. For $29.99, you'll receive three issues. That's 38% off the retail price. Nourish and Flourish, connecting readers with the people and stories that make a difference in living a more balanced, healthier life. Subscribe today or find a retailer near you at nourishandflourish.site. Are you enjoying this show? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. I'm Luke Griffin, and I'm the host of Bushwick Podcast. Each week, we share the remarkable stories of how artists, activists, and entrepreneurs collide in Bushwick, a special Brooklyn neighborhood that's changing faster by the day. You can find Bushwick Podcast wherever you get your podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org.
2: Hey, welcome back. So um, you are on the receiving end of the the mentorship. Have you worked with Mindy already? I worked with her for a week in April. I start my new job October 1st. So what did you learn in your week with Mindy? I worked a lot that week. I did a lot of
4: prep work. Like, I worked a lot with her staff, and then Mindy and I had a lot of sit-down conversations together. And my first day, she had me make crepes, and I messed it up real bad. Like, I think I put not enough eggs or something wrong in it and I had to redo it and then I made crepes like all week so you got better I made a lot of crepes <laughs> I can make you a ton now I was flipping them like in a skillet with my hand I think I made like a hundred a day because I had to make a crepe cake to put on her menu so it I was great but her message to me was I'm not going to tell you exactly how to do it she says take the knowledge you have Think about where you want to be and use, like, definitive thinking to figure it out.
2: What is definitive thinking?
4: Like, break down. You know what goes into a crepe cake. You know it's eggs, milk, flour. You know what consistency you want. Look around. See what you have. How can you get there? She's not going to tell me the steps.
2: And She's not going to give you a recipe?
4: She'll give me a ratio.
2: A ratio. Okay. Yeah.
4: It's like a little post-it note I got. Um, it was like six eggs, a cup and a half of flour, and, like, this little recipe. She's like, but make, like, three quarts. So I had to do all the math, get all the equipment. But I mean once I messed it up and failed at it, I did it again it was perfect and I made it over and over and now I can do it. And the crepe cake was really good. It was strawberry brown butter crepe cake. Mm. Um yeah, it was really cool. But see, yeah. that
3: to to I don't to me that's cooking. I right? agree. Like like that's cooking when you go, Okay. Like here's a recipe, fine, but we all know like recipes don't work and the temperature and the humidity, right. like like to me and And we need more of that. Like, I think like, so as versus well. like here's a recipe and follow exactly. like like I, I love that figuring out the puzzle mm-hmm. you know of, of cooking. Okay,
2: know, I, mean. yeah. I hear that and I freak out. <laughs> I'm like you gotta post it. Yeah. Like, that is the. Definition of anxiety <laughs> to me oh. right there. <laughs> since, <laughs> since Magazine Ed. editor. <laughs> <laughs> just like, yeah, right. Anyway, yeah. so. Yeah, that's how I
4: learn. Um, so that's why I'm really excited to work for her because it's going to be a more eclectic version of baking because I've been to culinary school and where I work now, I'm like the only pastry chef. So I'm just kind of teaching myself as I go, figuring it out. But I've not had. To any guidance at all or anyone to speak to about what they messed up, stories and advice. So I'm really excited. She's teaching me the way I learn best, and I can still speak to her about what I need to work on and where she thinks I should focus so I can grow to my
2: fullest potential. Your um, dessert menu is beautiful. Thank you. And very restrained. Thank you. Um, Is that something you worked towards? Because I think dessert can be so about... Excess.
4: That's also something Mindy told me I needed to work on when I was with her because my menu at my job in Louisville when I was there with her was a little more fun. And for where I am, it was a little dramatic, and some of the people thought it was too ambitious. So she sat me down, and she was like, we need to talk about restraint. We need to talk about simplicity. And this is the dessert you have. This is what I think you should change it to, and here's why. So I went back Three days after I got back, I released a new menu. And the one that's up now is the one after that one. So I'm practicing that.
2: I feel like I I, I saw that. Yeah. (laughs) You are creating this program at In the South. Do you think that the South is particularly one way or another for women chefs? Particularly easy? Particularly hard?
3: You know, I I, I am not an expert in in every state. Um, For for Kentucky, I do know that... um, it's so funny, and, and it's, I think it also kind of rings true nationwide. Um, we always think of the chef world as being male-dominated, right? But it wasn't always so, and it's particularly true of Kentucky. And so we kind of have, have sort of blinded ourselves into thinking like, you know, oh, well, it's always been male-dominated, so it's probably going to stay that way forever. And, and in my research and my history looking at it, it's only quite recently that it's been male-dominated that if you look at the food space, the cookbook writers, the matrons that were working at, at, at you know, mom and pop Shop restaurants, you know, before restaurants became a thing, um, they were all run by women, right? The, 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 all the magazine writers, all the people in the newspapers, everyone who contributed and created this thing that we call Kentucky cuisine was basically dominated by, by women's voices. I have a theory that when when it became lucrative, when it became competitive, um, it became a male-dominated space because um, like men always run to where the money is, and and it became this this competition thing, right? Like how much did your restaurant earn? My restaurant earn more, and and it became a, a sport, if you will, um, and so and and that's that's out of balance. I'm not even propping up women, you know. I'm we're just we're trying to get the restaurant industry back to some kind of even keel, where it's not all about men, it's not all about women, but it's about this, this sort of balance and, and just because it's this way now, we shouldn't ever take for granted that it should be this way forever.
2: One of the things we talked about was the necessity of funding. Um, you have support from Maker's Mark. Yes. Um, and shout out, <laughs> shout out Maker's Mark, but I was really interested in Margie's Mark.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, can you tell us about that?
4: Yeah, um, so we did make our own barrel of bourbon, and there's 240 bottles of it. And the story behind Maker's Mark was that the creator, um, I don't remember the husband's name, actually, I just know Margie. (laughs) That's Um, awesome.
2: Yeah. (laughs) The guy just got erased from history. Yeah,
4: sorry. (laughs) Um, He wanted his bourbon to be uh, a front-tasting bourbon, and everyone liked it so much that Margie was like, this is great, we're going to sell it. And she basically was behind like printing the labels, dipping the bottles, she made the logo and she got it out there. So she's kind of the whole reason this program even exists because they're our biggest funder.
3: Let me think about it. She invented the the red dipping. wax. That's yeah. so think, beautiful. Like, like, so distinct like, distinctive. Yeah, one of the, one <laughs> of the most like historically like incredible marketing ideas.
2: It is. I, I wanna talk about drugs in the kitchen. I've read about um, you know your time on the Lower East Side in Manhattan, which I don't know if you were taking a bunch of drugs, but right. you certainly were at the white hot center yes. of drug taking yes. in New York City nightlife restaurants. Oh, yeah. Tell me what it was like back in the day, the crazy, crazy kitchens and the changes that you've seen.
3: Listen, it it wasn't so scandalous, right? If everyone's doing it, it's not scandalous. And it was just a part of culture. Like you just... It was all around you. There there was a point in my career, and listen, I I, I partaked in anything that people would throw at me. There's a certain point in your career, I I think in anyone's career as a chef, where, where you sit down and you go, okay, here's two paths in front of me. I can be a professional drug addict for the rest of my life, or I can be a professional chef. And at some point, you do have to make that choice. You can't shield these young cooks from it. It's there. It's gonna happen. There's, there's nothing you can do about it. What you do is you're just upfront and honest about it. And, and, and part of what we're trying to do, actually, at our restaurant group, too, is figure out coping mechanisms, right? Because it is really stressful. We have really hard days. And, and to this day, still, I get off work and I'm like, ah, I need a drink. You know and it's fine until it's not fine and so our thing is whether whether it's mental health issues whether it's hiring therapists whether it's doing something uh, whether it's gym memberships you know like 24 hour gym memberships like anything that can get your mind off of that you know how can you cope with a stressful day without reaching for that and, and there are ways to do it people can do it but it's just never been a priority in our industry
2: and I mean you have a particularly like poignant relationship with opioids yeah. because when you were growing up your mom had a bunch of surgeries yes and like so so many americans ended up with opioids to manage the pain
4: she did um so from like age 8 to 12 maybe i lived with my grandmother most of the time because my mom was having a rough time and um she lived kind of across town, and my dad's a firefighter, so he worked a really funny schedule. He worked like 24-hour shifts, and then he'd be off for two days. So like growing up and going to school, that wasn't really good for kids, because I'd bounce between houses. So I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. It was really hard for me to make friends going to the school I went to, because all of the parents knew about my mom. Mm. and like Was
2: your mom sort of visibly not Yes. parent yeah. or
4: yeah. Um, a couple times, like, if I was in a sports game, like, it would be noticeable, um, of course, I stopped doing sports and just baked, but my mom is doing great now, she's That's wonderful. That's so awesome to hear. Yeah, That's I great. think she's, I want to say, seven years sober? It's fantastic. Yeah, and, um, growing up, it gave me a perspective that, like, I do have an addictive personality, like, mm-hmm. it's in our genes, like, there's people in our family who are alcoholics, like, It's noticeable in my family. So I knew that baking is kind of my addiction right now. That's what I realized when I was growing up and, like, I was in therapy and I was talking about my mom and, like, all the things that were happening to me. So I try to not make it an addiction. I try to make it something that's bringing me joy and it's also educating me. And it's not just something I'm doing because I need to fill the time so I don't think about things.
2: And so... Feeling like you have an addictive personality and you have an addicted sort of family background, does that give you concern about working in an environment where, as Ed says, like you have to make a choice? Every you your yes. choice is clear for yourself, yeah but then you're surrounded by people who maybe make other choices. Does that concern you?
4: Not for myself. Um, my brother is also in the industry. He's a bartender. I was worried about him for a while because he did choose a different path for a minute, and. Um, yeah he had the moment where he and I sat down we had dinner and he was like this just isn't working for me and I was like okay cool let's talk about it and we were talking about my mom and like how that happening offset my life and offset everyone in our family's life and I was like I know you don't want to be that person but you can't see that right now so I'm gonna tell you because I love you and he had the moment like he's like yep nope no more So it's great. We're managing our addictive personalities. I think everyone in my family is doing great now. And it's really set me up for how I want to proceed with my career.
2: I, I mean, I love the stories that you can make this. It's like a switch that is flipped. You know, you had made this choice. Like, I have two paths. I'm going to take this one. And then... yeah. And not everyone...
3: You know, some people need help doing it. Yeah, of sure. and, right. and, and there's no shame in that. Like, no. like I know tons of people that have been to the rehab. And, and it's not just in big cities. It's all over rural America. It's, yeah. It's, it's all sure. over every industry. And we see it in Kentucky. I mean, you can drive through eastern Kentucky yeah. and, 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 and see entire towns being ravaged by drugs and, and and it's a shame it's
2: terrible so and you probably would never have thought that you would have ended up in the south right
3: i mean not not at 25 <laughs> 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 but life comes at you fast
2: and what do you think the benefit has been to um to like to pick up i mean you did a big road trip and you ended up you're like Louisville's well, my place yeah. um how do you find your place and what do you tell these kids it, it,
3: it, it's it's so random like if someone told me as a young chef that you were going to move to kentucky and and open a restaurant there and and, and like be the guy in kentucky like i would have said you're crazy like that's the and and i think sometimes the, the universe just has a weird way of pointing you somewhere and and for for not just you but for every young chef that that i talked to i'm always like, just keep your mind open you, you never know where it's going to take you um and i remember at 29 leaving new york and all of my friends at the time, who were chefs, said, "Okay, great, bye. We'll never hear from you ever again because you're going to the middle of nowhere and you're going to be, you know, living in a black hole. And you know, farewell." And um, and then lo and behold, I'm on Dana Cowan's <laughs> podcast. <laughs> so so the world, you know, and and you know, I grew up very poor. I grew up awkward. I grew up, you know, with with lots of my own sort of trials and tribulations, and and. Food has given me a career. It's given me a family. It's allowed me to travel the world, meet some of my best friends, and, and it's everything. And it, it, It's more meaningful than just food, you know? I just feel very honored, really, quite frankly, and humbled that like, I could land in a place like Kentucky. And not only did they accept me, Warmly, but they put me on a pedestal. Like, I found my voice in Southern food, which is a weird thing, because that's not what normal Korean immigrants do. Like, I remember eating my first bowl of collard greens and feeling like, like, this is home. This is it. I don't know why I like it so much, but this is it. And, and if you do, then why not?
2: So you are younger <laughs> than, yes. um, than Ed was when he first, like, landed. Do you have a sense of where your true North home is?
4: No. Not at all. Um, I'm kind of just going where my career takes me right now. I don't have an aversion to go anywhere. Wherever I can learn and grow and meet great people, I think is where I need to be.
2: Um, I want to know something that you think that is better than the hype.
4: Um, I think Louis Mill, the cornmeal. uh, Jess, one of our volunteers, made an app with it, and it's my favorite cornmeal. And it does deserve all the hype because it doesn't get any. And it's like a smoked cornmeal. Wow. Um, and it's this stone grind. It's a little gritty. And when it bakes, it's yellow with orange flakes in it. And it's beautiful. So that's probably my choice. Definitely needs more hype. Love it. Yeah.
3: Bourbon. <laughs> <laughs> I think. Um, you I know, knew you were
2: going to say that, Ed. I know, yeah, I'm sorry. You're I'm really so predictable.
3: predictable. I know. Like, like we like, <laughs> both um So I'll put it this way. There's a bar in DC called Jack Rose. They have this like library uh, collection of bourbons, and I don't know how this guy gets these bourbons, but I mean you can go there and scroll through uh, a telephone book of, of whiskeys. Um, anything from like the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I mean it's outrageous. I, like I can't go because I spend so much. Because and they're not cheap. But like a literally will like drop a week's salary like drinking you know bourbon from the 1950s. It's, it's incredible.
2: That sounds extraordinary. Yeah. And the last question, a uh, shout out broadly to a woman who you believe that everyone deserves to know.
4: So I would say Jamie Arzano, the culinary director of James Beard. She is an incredible woman. Um, she started at the James Beard house as a volunteer and she worked her way up to becoming the culinary director. And she has a wonderful kitchen manager And she takes on interns, and she has a mentee. And she was a great big help while we were there. She was so welcoming. And her kitchen is so well organized and so clean. And it's the smoothest kitchen I've worked in. The service was impeccable. And I really think she deserves more praise than she gets.
2: Fantastic. And Ed, what about you?
3: Um, There's a hometown person right here uh, who I'm sure you know of. I just bought her, it's a husband and wife team, uh, but Nicole Ponseca, um, I just got her cookbook I Am Filipino, and um, it's really incredible. Um, I think Filipino food is, um, this is like always on the cusp of having its moment, and um, to me this book is kind of like a watershed moment for Filipino food, uh, and if you haven't been to the restaurants, the restaurants are fabulous too, um, but it's some, I, I just think that she Um, should be a household name.
2: And her restaurant?
3: The restaurant's Jeepney. Uh, And they have a new one, which I'm going to butcher the name. Maralika. But they're, like, right next to each other on on First Avenue.
2: Jeepney's amazing. It's so Mm -hmm. in-your-face. At a time... Because she's been around for a while. And before Filipino became, like, the next Korean food. Mm -hmm. Sorry, dude. And um, she was really, really passionate and out in front and really inspiring. Well, I wanna thank um both Ed and Emmy for coming and joining me. The the Lee Initiative is an extraordinary program and obviously you find extraordinary young chefs to introduce to the mentoring and leadership opportunities that you provide. And um for anyone who wants to support and donate to to the Lee Initiative, you can go on their website. I wanna thank Uh, My amazing engineer for the day, Matt Patterson, thank you. And my incredible co-producer, Nita Menfinskaya. Thanks for listening, and come on back next week. Speaking Broadly is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network.